0: Welcome everyone. How are you enjoying reInvent so far? Yes. That's the spirit. So my name is Vlad Vashchanu. I'm a solutions architect with Amazon Web Services. And with me today I have Ganesh Subramaniam from Fulfillment with, by Amazon and Brandon Cuff from Scopely, who will also speak about their experience with AWS. Uh, I ask that you hold your questions until the end. We have microphones over there so everybody can hear them. Um, so just by a quick show of hands how many of you are using serverless architectures or serverless technologies today okay so a few of you uh, that means that at least a couple of you are wondering why we're having a serverless talk in the databases track um, in many ways the answer to that question comes from the tremendous adoption that we've seen with ser- serverless technologies over the last two years and for every imaginable use case. The versatility of these architectures are very compelling, and why would high-performance data be any different? Today we'll cover a quick overview on serverless architectures and the patterns that we see in high-performance data use cases. And then we'll hear from the folks from fulfillment by amazon and scopely how serverless architectures help them be more agile and optimize their costs so just starting from the beginning serverless architectures are here to help you build applications and services i know that's no surprise to any of you here in the room but only do that without managing any sort of, or having to manage any sort of infrastructure. No hardware, no virtual machines, or no containers that you have to manage so you can run your services on or your applications. Oops. And you do that by changing what the computational unit of scale is. It's no longer a server hosting a monolithic application or a microservice of some kind. It's the single-purpose function that's the computational unit of scale. Everything else is abstracted from the hardware all the way up to the language runtime. So you can just focus on the code that you have to run. And this has some compelling benefits. For once, there's less development the development and operational complexity that you have to deal with and in turn that increases your agility and you only execute those functions when you when they are really needed which optimizes your own cost because you're actually only paying for the time and a number of invocations for those functions this is game changing because functional units and applications fundamentally have vastly different utilization profiles and scaling needs. So naturally, at the center of any serverless architecture is AWS Lambda, the service that allows you to run such functions in the cloud. Only it's the whole ecosystem of services and components that interact with AWS Lambda that actually make that Serverless architecture and make it such a compelling proposition. You've got triggers and event sources for functions. You've got streaming data that's being processed by Lambda functions. You've got data persistent services so data can be persisted. Anything that gets processed by those Lambda functions. You've got integration points with other AWS services, with third party services. Integration with your VPC, so you can access any sort of resources that are internal to your, you know, affected to your intranet, to your virtual private cloud, or legacy applications. And with all these components of a serverless architecture, data is always the key part of that architecture. Whether that, you know, when you're looking at it, you know, you. Your functions are acting on data. Data is the input. And then there's... Your functions are actually processing data or ETLing that data or manipulating it in any sort of way to match the business logic. And then, you know, that data then gets persistent somewhere or gets returned back part of your function response. And these... Create repeatable abstractions that are central to how AWS lambda interacts with data you've got lambda functions that are event handlers and these for these types of functions you know the the computational purpose of that function is to do something with an incoming event type and only events matching that specific type you've got lambda functions that are acting as serverless backends. And in that case, the abstraction is that API call or the path of that API, and that function is only designed to act on that structure, on that specific RESTful pattern. And then you have Lambda functions in streaming data use cases. Data processing are very strong use cases for Lambda. The abstraction there is a record or a data type Again, the function will process only data of that type on that specific format. So this not only helps maintainability, but it puts a clear focus on the data that needs to be handled by any given function, process, or flow. It becomes really, really tough in that kind of an environment to build spaghetti code or monolithic applications. And with this in mind, we see two patterns and two main Patterns of adoption for serverless architectures in high Performance data use cases. So one of them is where lambda is Actually playing an active role. This is where lambda is Use part of the workload itself. It's front and center. They're processing your data, you know, scaling on demand Based on how much data is flowing into that system or you It's API-driven. Lambda is used to process data potentially part of an ETL orchestration framework. But in either of those cases, it's front and center there. It's the central part that's driving your business logic. So the advantages in these cases we see around reducing operational complexities. You've got functions that are scaling independently, decoupled of other functions in your application, and you're only paying for the that code that's actually running at that point rather than paying for a host or a service where not necessarily all the code paths might be active at any given point in time. Now, not everyone, of course, can build applications from scratch matching these serverless architectures. Um, and many of us have applications that have been running for Several years now, you know, they're not necessarily at a point where they can completely redesign everything, and that's okay. So, in those kinds of use cases, we see lambdas working in a support role. So, this is where lambda is used in some form or fashion to optimize a pre-existing workload, a pre-existing application. And there's many really ways you can do that. We've seen use cases where Lambda assists with database utilization. We've seen Lambda use cases where it assists with scaling of a legacy application. We've seen Lambda where it assists with anomaly detection, ensuring that, you know, the application works correctly or data access is correct. We've seen Lambda assisting in monitoring and logging solutions. So these are all cases where... where Lambda is still there, serverless architectures are still there, but they're in the support role, just making sure that the application that you're ma- mainly running is running as effectively as possible. So indirectly, you're still benefiting from cost optimizations, right? Um, you're having a situation where, you know, because your applications run more, runs more effectively, you're saving, you're saving and optimizing on cost. Um, There's also a couple of other types of advantages in these kinds of use cases. You know, your applications are more resilient. There's something there watching it 24-7 and ensuring that it's working correctly and potentially can also actually make it work even at higher higher performance. And to illustrate the use of Lambda in both these roles, uh, we have Ganesh from Fulfillment by Amazon we'll talk about their serverless architecture for the seller inventory authority platform and then we'll have Brandon Cough from Scopely who will show you how they're using lambda to detect and track hot keys in their applications and with this i want to invite ganesh to the stage
1: Hello, everyone. Um, My name is Ganesh. I'm a senior engineer at Amazon uh, working on inventory systems. And I'm here to talk about um, the inventory data platform that we built with the serverless architecture. With that, um, I'm sure a lot of you have already done your holiday shopping, or you might have already started your holiday shopping. Um, Show of hands, how many of you have heard the term FBA? Quite a few. Um, So, um, here is an FBA item that is sold on Amazon, and the way to identify an FBA item is, if you look at the seller on record, it has a seller, and next to it, it has Fulfilled by Amazon. And FBA items are eligible for free shipping as part of Amazon Prime, free two-day shipping as part of Amazon Prime. And... Um, Let's look at how FBA works and what are the inventory challenges in in this space. Uh, FBA is a service offered by Amazon for sellers to sell their inventory through Amazon by having them send their items into our Amazon warehouses where we manage the inventory. When the order comes in, we pack and deliver it to the buyer. So um, seller sends their inventory, We send it to the buyer when the order comes in, and we handle the customer service after the sales has happened. Sellers don't have to worry about um, managing uh, warehouses or uh, doing the tedious task of fulfilling the item. Um, Buyers get uh, the experience that they always expect from Amazon. um, Fast shipping, um, great customer service, And Amazon benefits from this by having increased selection because sellers bring in a lot of items into the marketplace that might not have already been existing. So it's a truly win-win-win situation for the sellers, the buyers, and the Amazon in this platform. So sellers send their inventory to Amazon by indicating how many items they have, uh, they're going to send, um, and uh, we receive it in our warehouses. When we receive it, uh, it goes through multiple stages into, in the warehouse. Um, we uh, uh, receive it, we might transfer it to another warehouse, and then finally it might get stored in some place. Um, during all this process, the inventory level of the seller keeps fluctuating. Um, it, uh, the inventory gets added into the account when we actually receive it. The inventory will get subtracted when the order is fulfilled or when we move items uh, from one warehouse to another. The Veros management systems track these different inventory movements, um, but they are not responsible for providing an aggregated view of the seller's inventory, and that's where this data platform comes in. Um, We have a number of systems within FBA that uses inventory information, and every system trying to aggregate all of this information would become a very costly exercise. To address this, we um, built a data platform with the following goals. One, it has to be a single source of sellers, uh, single source of truth for seller's inventory. Um, we wanted to make sure that not every system has to aggregate all the different input, um, the inventory movements, and trying to aggregate this. Uh, number two, we wanted to have a reconciled view of the inventory. Um, we wanted to explain how the inventory changes from uh, position 8X to position Y. Um, and lastly, when... We are not able to explain it. We want to surface and track those discrepancies. And that's the role of this data platform. So um, if you look at what are the design requirements for this data platform, it should be able to handle uh, really high volume of uh, input messages. Um, And it should be able to be uh, resilient to handle the hotkey syndrome, which is a very quick burst of uh, events or messages for a single key or a set of keys. Uh, one key should not uh, or transactions for one key should not impact the rest of the uh, processing. Um, it should handle duplicate and out of order messages and we wanted to maintain a complete audit of every single inventory change that happens, so that we can go back and um, explain as to why the inventory position is what it is and make sure that we have complete traceability through the entire pipeline. Um, for when we started building this architecture, we wanted to go with a completely managed services because uh, it makes sense um, to avoid operational um, pain points that uh, you encounter when you manage your own hardware and hosts and everything. Um, so we chose lambda as the s- central component of this architecture, um, and Kinesis is the stream. Um, uh, Processing or the stream unit that manages all these events coming into our pipeline, the Kinesis Lambda integration makes it really easy to um, build these kinds of solutions. Uh, so, if you look at it, we have uh, various management systems emitting different events um, into our transaction service. Um, we these messages get queued up in the Kinesis streams, and we have Lambda processes that. Take each event coming in the Kinesis stream and processing it and storing it in our DynamoDB stores. Um, Once it gets into DynamoDB stores, we have DynamoDB update streams that emit the changes coming from these um, records or persisted items in the DynamoDB that is further post-processed using additional Lambda functions. And we build an aggregated view of this inventory. Once the aggregated view of inventory is persisted again in DynamoDB, further it gets published into Elasticsearch so that we can easily search across, um, aggregate it, um, sort it, and do those kinds of uh, retrieval patterns that DynamoDB is not really good at. Um, And then we use SNS to publish notifications whenever any inventory position changes so that our clients can either... Get notified when some inventory level changes, or they can come into the system and query from our Elasticsearch store to get the inventory data that they need. Through all of these processes, we have uh, archival front and center. We archive both in S3 as well as in Redshift. Um, S3 is used for typical traditional archiving, and Redshift is used for operational um, management. If you wanted to go and query what happened to a particular seller's inventory, it's easier to query in a Redshift rather than trying to write an EMR script going against S3. Um, for that, we use Lambda processes that publish the data into Kinesis firehoses that finally gets into the final end state. So um, after building this um, system, if you look back at what the results of this journey was, um, first, because of the serverless technologies, because of Lambda, Kinesis, uh, DynamoDB, all of them are AWS-managed services, we don't really have to um, spend too much time on operational overhead. Um, we were able to quantify uh, a savings of about 22 dev weeks across this entire platform because we don't have to worry about host monitoring, um, load balancer monitoring, setting up alarms uh, on hosts, uh, worrying about how to scale for the Q4 holiday peak and then those kinds of things. These are elastic services that we can scale easily uh, without having to spend a tremendous time and effort in doing this. Um, again, because of using Lambda, which is single-purpose unit functions, and the built-in integration with the various AWS services, we were able to go from design to launch in less than four months, which is Uh, a a big uh, success for this platform. Um, With this architecture, we were able to improve accuracy of our inventory quantities, um, and due to that, we were able to save on cost of business operations like seller contacts, which could potentially lead to expensive uh, bin checks where an associate has to go into the warehouse and count every single inventory unit to answer a question coming from a seller. So because of the accuracy in the inventory, improvement in the accuracy of the inventory, we were able to reduce those business operation costs. And our team members loved working on the latest technologies using AWS managed services. So um, now let me um, focus a little bit about what were the best practices that we used while we built this platform, uh, and that might be useful for you. So first, we took advantage of uh, Lambda container reuse. Um, lambda is essentially a stateless execution environment, but um, there is still an opportunity for us to um, do c- costly one-time activities outside the scope of an execution um, for of a lambda instance. Um, by that, I mean, for example, we use Java and Spring heavily for our event processing, and uh, when you use Spring, you have to build the dependency graph so that the injection happens uh, um, by the container. And, and that we were able to accomplish without having to do this for every single invocation of the Lambda instance, and we were able to do it using the container reuse outside the scope of the event handler. This um, helped improve our performance of our um, execution units tremendously, which uh, greatly reduced our cost. Too. Um, next... Um, everybody um, is familiar with this. We need to instrument and monitor all our execution environments. With Lambda, it's, it's a little bit more important to do it because unlike traditional um, uh, computing uh, infrastructure, it's, it's hard to debug and trace in runtime with Lambda. You don't have access to runtime. Um, so we spent a lot of effort uh, trying to instrument our code, uh, make sure that we have complete visibility during runtime through our own custom metrics and monitors um, that uh, we have through our code. And we wrote a CloudWatch reporter that essentially takes these custom metrics and publishes into CloudWatch before the execution unit ends in Lambda. So uh, that helped us uh, make sure that we know how our uh, runtime is performing. Um, the other important thing that we uh, spend a lot of time is um, abstracting um, the Lambda launch f- functions from a core entity processing function. Um, and the reason being is that, um, number one, when we, uh, when we started this journey, Lambda was relatively new, and we were hedging our bets. We wanted to quickly, um, uh, quickly jump into KCL if we have any launch issues with Lambda. Um, That was one motivation. The second motivation is that uh, we wanted to make sure that our Lambda code is heavily unit tested, and by having separation of responsibilities in terms of the Lambda launch functionality from our entity processing makes our code easier to unit test. Um, So to... Towards this, we focused on building uh, our own utilities. Uh, One of them is called the Lambda Launch Helper, which is responsible for initializing the dependency graph and making sure that Spring is um, ready, and then uh, invokes the event handler after deserializing the event that came from Kinesis or DynamoDB Stream, and invoking the event handler with the entity so that um, the entity processor can process that. this also took care of the common um, error reporting and error handling um, so that not every processor needs to worry about it and, as, and can also emit these custom metrics, which greatly helps us in our operational aspects. Um, and the last um, best practice um, um, I wanted to share was um, we used... Canary and, um, canary to help us understand, um, how our system is performing and make sure that our system is meeting our SLA. Um, what I mean by canary is that we regularly submit synthetic transactions or test transactions into our pipeline so that we know, we can measure when we submitted the transaction and compare it against the end state and make sure that the transaction went through the pipeline as well as whether it met the SLA. Um, So every few seconds we submit these transactions, and it helps us monitor whether there's a backlog somewhere because our test failed or or whether it meets the SLA. And uh, this is a critical tool in our pipeline to make sure our health of the system is um, really good. Um, We use Kinesis Shard Level metrics to know when a backlog is building and make sure that uh, we have adequate monitors around it. Here's a sample dashboard um, that um, we use, uh, some of the metrics that we use. Um, Average transaction processing time for the end-to-end system. Um, How many transactions, how old are the transactions in our backlog, as well as what is the canary processing time. And if any of these fails, we can be alerted so that we can go and investigate into this. Um, With this, I will call Brandon, who's going to talk about um, the serverless architecture that they built.
2: Uh, My name is Brandon. I'm a senior engineer from uh, Scopely. So Scopely is a mobile game company. Uh, We have several games, but the ones I'm going to talk to you today about are um, Yahtzee with Buddies, Dice with Buddies, and Wheel of Fortune Free Play. Um, So Yahtzee and Dice are pretty simple games. They're uh, player-versus-player, turn-based games. So one guy takes his mobile client, he rolls some dice, he makes a choice, submits it to the server, server sends a push notification to the other guy, the other guy plays his turn, and then they go back and forth until the game's over. Uh, and then maybe they win some achievements or a tournament or a prize or some currency. Um, Wheel of Fortune has a similar game mode, but there's a longer duration between uh, server trips because you're spinning wheels and guessing letters and things, which takes a little longer. Um... we're not Netflix but we do have uh, some pretty decent traffic Uh, you know we have over six million daily active users uh, million requests per minute and you know 100 plus API servers Uh, so here's a basic layout of our architecture Um, like Vlad said earlier uh, we're not using lambda in our primary role it's playing more of a supporting role but I'll get to that later So right now, we're running EC2 instances behind an ELB. Uh, The mobile clients will make HTTP requests to the ELB, and then the instances will uh, talk to MimCache, ElastiCache, uh, MySQL, and DynamoDB to serve the request. Um, So in order to serve a request, uh, the application uh, needs access to a couple different types of data. Uh, Some of it is just meta information. So this is uh, stuff that's shared between all users. Um, It's like what tournaments are currently running, when they start, when they end. uh, What achievements are configured, that sort of thing. Um, So this kind of stuff, uh, it's really small. The PMs configure it in the website. Um, So our application servers just pull it out of MySQL every minute and then keep it in local memory so this kind of this use case is really trivial and easy to to scale Um, well there's not really any scaling Uh, our second type of data is more interesting it's our user specific data Um, so uh, these are things like um, the actual game documents that the user are playing on uh, the achievements that they've completed like what they scored in a tournament, that sort of thing, so anything that has to do that goes with the user, we typically put in DynamoDB um, because we have a lot of user data, <laughs> and um, we don 't really want to worry about getting up in the middle of the night and having to shut down our RDS instance and upgrading it and that sort of thing um, we 'd rather just go to DynamoDB or or use a tool that automatically scales up DynamoDB on demand. Uh, Cool. So, um, about DynamoDB, so theoretically, uh, you can scale up as much as you want uh, within a region. Uh, And this is possible because under the hood, DynamoDB will break up your data into partitions uh, so that multiple servers can actually work on that data. Um, And then each record that you have in DynamoDB has what's called a hash key. Uh, I think they might call it a partition key now. But... um, That key tells, uh, DynamoDB uses that key to map a particular record into a partition. Um, So when you provision a a table in DynamoDB, these partitions are transparent to you. Uh, You just say, hey, DynamoDB, I'd like to be able to read uh, 4,000 records per second. Um, And DynamoDB under the hood allocates enough partitions to handle uh, 4,000 requests per second but each partition has its own upper bound, upper limit on how much throughput it can actually handle. Um, So when you uh, exceed the throughput of a particular partition, you'll get a throttling error. Uh, And then typically uh, clients will do an exponential back off or something so that, uh, to slow down. Um, But usually we like to avoid the throttling errors to begin with. So in this situation, I have a table that has 4,000 reads per second. Um, So if my client tries to get the record for user 1, 2, 3, um, you know, 2,000 times per second, even though the table capacity is 4,000 times per second, it's still gonna get throttling errors because it's exceeding the limit of its partition, and that record only lives on one partition. So when, when this happens, we call it a hotkey. Um, so a hotkey is like one, one key that's accessed more frequently than the other keys. And in order for DynamoDB to work really well, you have to sort of distribute your, your load across the keys evenly, um, so that one partition doesn't get overwhelmed while the other ones are just sitting idle. And uh, in this, we have a couple of CloudWatch graphs on the slide, uh, the top one is showing that we're currently experiencing throttling errors on our GITs. And the bottom one is showing, uh, see the red line is our provision capacity for our Dynamo table, and the blue line is our actual consumed capacity. Uh, So this is sort of the classic symptoms of a hotkey. We're under-provisioned, but uh, we're still seeing throttling. So I don't know how many of you guys have have seen this sort of situation before. Cool. (laughs) Yeah. So, this happens a lot. Um, So, let's see. Oh. Um, So, at Scopely, since this happens all the time, we we try to come up with with better ways of attacking this problem. Uh, So, one way you can attack the problem is to just put some cache nodes in front of it, and that sort of works for a while, but... Generally when we run like memcached, we run it in a cluster and you have, you know, each key is going to sit in a particular node in the cluster and you're going to eventually overwhelm uh, a particular cache node as well. So that doesn't really get you all the way there, uh, but it, does, it might work for a little while. Um, another thing that you can do is, uh, you know, the best thing to do is really to solve the underlying problem and uh that can be sort of a, a whole bunch of different things it's usually a bug of some kind or just an oversight um but detecting it is usually the hard thing cuz you have to assist, you know in our i don't know about you guys but in our in our code we have like you know millions of lines of code and sifting through it and finding like where this hotkey might be uh is kind of difficult so it's it's really nice to know what the key is that really helps Uh, find the problem, but the CloudWatch metrics don't tell you, so that's unfortunate. Um, So to find the key, we could do a couple of things. I mean, we could pop up Wireshark and try to sniff traffic and look for the key, and uh, that doesn't really work over SSL, so it doesn't work for Dynamo. It does kind of work for Memcache, but uh, it's not very convenient. Um, Another thing is you can put some code in your application to just log a key every time you request something, but that adds a ton of overhead and it takes up a lot of space in your uh, in your logging cluster. Uh, so what we really want is a solution that we can turn on all the time, um, has minimal performance overhead and doesn't cost a lot of money uh, in storage. Uh, so we came up with this solution. Um, so we what we do is we have our application servers have a bit of tracking code in it and it keeps track of the Top ten most frequently seen keys in our Memcache client and in our DynamoDB uh, wrapper client. Um, so, like the straightforward way of tracking the keys is maybe just to have like a hash map where you have the key is the key and the value is a count. Uh, but if you have, if you're running through like a hundred thousand uh, requests per minute on a particular application server, you have to use a lot of memory to, to do that for every period. Uh, so we cheat a little bit. We use a probabilistic algorithm, uh, which called count and sketch, um, but this allows us to sort of sacrifice a bit of accuracy in our counts, um, and the trade-off is that we can use a fixed size of memory to track an unlimited number of keys, uh, and that works pretty well for us because all we really need to know is the relative difference between, um, like how hot one key is compared to the average. um so here's a quick overview of our oh so like once we get those uh, top 10 keys in our logs it gets pushed into our logging stack and this is what that looks like so this is sort of lambda in the supporting role Uh, we have our application um, and we have a little sidecar process that runs on our application that aggregates our logs Uh, and it shoves that into kinesis Uh, then we have a lambda that uh, reads from this Kinesis and pulls out interesting information from the logs. so all the typical things like the timestamp, what host it came from, what game it came from, uh, and other use case specific information would like our uh, our hotkey information. Uh, so once it it pulls out and parses all those logs, it shoves the elastic or shoves the documents into search service. And then we can use Kibana to build dashboards and have nice, pretty graphs and that sort of thing uh, that give us some quick insight into what's going on. Um, and Lambda works really well for this scenario because um, there have been several times where our application uh, has some log information, but it's not indexed yet. Uh, and it's really nice to be able to say, oh, hey, I'd like to really index that, up, that information and then make a, a graph out of it uh, without having to wait for the next sort of deployment cycle of, of our application. Uh, so LEM makes it really easy because I can just, you know, change, add a regular expression to that code that pulls in the values into uh, into the document and then just hit Deploy. And within minutes, I'm getting my, my new indexing information. Um, it, it also makes subscribing to Kinesis really trivial because um, you add shards to Kinesis and it just... You don't have to think about adding more subscribers and that sort of thing. Uh, So that's really convenient. Uh, But back to the hotkey detection. Uh, So once we get our hotkey events into Elasticsearch, this is sort of what they look like. I mean, on the top, you'll see the log line. Uh, So that's what the application servers actually log when they uh, log the top ten keys. And then this is the uh, Elasticsearch document um, that gets produced once the lambda is finished with it. Um, so in there we have like a category of what, uh, what the hotkey thing is that we're tracking. In this case, it's uh, gets on memcache. Um, and then we have the key. We have the estimate of how many times that key was encountered. And then the total count is uh, the total count for the category for all keys. And then the frequency is the ratio of those two numbers. So once we have all this stuff into uh, in Elasticsearch, we can build a dashboard that looks sort of like this. And uh, I'm gonna show you how to build it real quick. Um, okay, so here I have a basic dashboard already built out. Um, I don't, oh, I do have that. Okay, let's get rid of that. Um, but I, we have a couple of things in here already. So we have like a, a date histogram of the log messages, um, the, which games the log messages came from uh, and the top posts. Uh, but we don't have our hotkey information yet. And also you'll notice that it looks kind of, there's like an odd traffic pattern to the logs. And that's because for this demo, I just wrote a lambda that gets invoked once a minute and it shoves a bunch of fake hotkey documents into Elasticsearch. But, uh, so this isn't our actual production uh, dashboard. <laughs> but... Um, So to make the hotkey thing, we'll go to visualize, and I'm gonna use a, a data table, since it's a little bit easier to see than the bar charts. And what we want to do is we want to add up the counts, and then we want to break it down using a terms aggregation on the keys. So I'll do top 10, and then I'll hit that green button and then right away we can see we have a couple of hotkeys in there Uh, so user.0 and user.negative1 are getting a lot more uh, hits than uh, the rest of the users so I'll hit save on this guy and then I can just add it on my dashboard like so. So, it's pretty easy to build one of these things, and how do I go back? (laughs) Okay, cool. So results and lessons learned. One thing is, we, we, once we deployed this thing, we found so many bugs, uh, way more than we thought we did. Um, most of them were in memcache because memcache has a, like a much higher throughput ceiling on, on the nodes. Um, so when we had a hotkey in memcache, we, we didn't, it went unnoticed for a long time. Uh, but when we started playing with this dashboard, we, we fixed like five things right away. Uh, we had like, special case user IDs, like the one that I showed you in the demo, um, so we had some requests that would, when you weren't playing against an actual person, it would send you down a user with an ID of negative one, and we started requesting negative one in our database and stuff, uh, so that, and then you'll see that um, we also had things like configuration objects that were, instead of being cached locally in memory like they should have been, they were cached in memcached, and they were all on the same node, um, and you can see, like, we took a look at our CloudWatch metrics after we found this, and then um, we noticed that, hey, look, one of our nodes is sending a lot more bytes out of it than the, uh, the rest of the nodes. So. Uh, we also discovered that um, large keys could be detected this way. Um, so we had intermittent timeouts with, um, on memcached, and we kind of had a suspicion that it was for very large objects that we stuck in there. And uh, so we used sort of the same hotkey detection technique, and instead of, uh, we just made a slight tweak to it, so instead of incrementing by one every time we uh, saw a key, we incremented by the size every time we pulled something out of memcache, and then that gave us a view into what the biggest objects were in our memcache uh, system relative to the whole. Uh, And we found some interesting things, like we had um, some users with a meta-information document uh, for that user that had like a little embedded list in it of recently recent users that you played with and that just kind of grew to infinity for some users uh... so we just ended up fixing that by trimming the list or or moving it to a different storage system um, but yeah the large key detection was really useful for finding those sorts of problems uh... we also caught a bot and uh... that was fun so like one uh... one day after we had already built this thing uh... We, our average response time went up like crazy, uh, but our median response time was okay, so it was just a slice of traffic was was having really poor performance. And we noticed a bunch of uh, throttling in DynamoDB, um, but yet we were still under the, uh, under-provisioned. And we took a look at our dashboard and we noticed, hey, this guy's user ID is showing up all over the place. Uh, we looked up his account and deleted it and you know, kind of solved the problem right away. And then we were able to play. We just played whack-a-mole uh, with this guy for a while until uh, the next release, when we implemented some rate limiting per per user request rate limiting, that sort of took care of the problem for good. Um, uh, we also caught some bad client behavior. Uh, so our iOS client uh, sort of did the right thing, and when you had a you have a game list, so it the iOS client would pull the game list, and then when you actually wanted to play the game, it would load some extra game details that you needed to play the game. Uh, So our Android client uh, would pull the game list. Then in the background, it would make a request for every single game you had in your game list. And some users had thousands of active games running. So every time they would refresh their game list, they would, you know, just, it would hang forever. And uh, the server would also return a bunch of errors, and they would get a bunch of nasty dialogues and that sort of thing. Uh, and this went unnoticed for a, of, for a long time because there weren't, aren't very many users that had that big of a game list to cause problems. Um, but once after we got rid of all these hotkeys, we noticed that some users were still showing up in it, and then we filtered it down by the um, client platform, and we noticed they were all happening on Android. So we kind of took a wild guess and say maybe it, thought maybe it was poor client behavior and looked into it. And then... Uh, talk to the client guys to fix the the problem. Anyways, uh, thanks for listening. Um, There's my email address if you have any questions.
0: Uh. right. thank you all for attending. Um, Really happy that you chose to spend the time with us. Before you go and we open up the floor for questions, I wanted to remind you to kind of fill out your evaluations. Your feedback is invaluable for us and it helps make reInvent better. And there's a couple of related sessions that might be interesting if you want to look more into uh, serverless architectures, patterns, and best practices or dive deeper into services such as DynamoDB and ElastiCache. And... We're all, all, both Brandon, Ganesh, and I will be here available for questions if anybody that wants is interested in finding out more. And thank you so much.